Before we get started, it's been a really horrendous few weeks for many Australians who have suffered with the floods. Uh, it's been horrific throughout southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales, many in Sydney as well. For those who have suffered so much, we would love to do something. So now Trade will be giving 100% of brokerage on Thursday, the 17th of March to give it a foundation that will be working with the flood survivors to help them rebuild. If you would like to make a contribution, please please consider trading with us. That's Thursday, the 17th of March. You can go to the NABTRADE website to find out more. We've had our charity trading day in the past. This is more of a spontaneous event, but we are very much hoping to be able to raise as much money as possible to give to those who need so much right now. Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, markets have become increasingly volatile in recent weeks due to the horrendous incidents in Ukraine and also continuing pressure on inflation, which is just not going away. There's a lot for investors to be thinking about. I know I say that all the time, but it really feels very very real right now. And the materials and energy sector seem to be the centre of a lot of what we need to be considering. Today, I'm speaking with Gavin Vent of Mine Life, who has covered the smaller end of the listed mining sector for literally decades. He's been doing this for a long time and uh, has plenty of insights to share. Gavin, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here and hello to you and your listeners. Gavin, there's a lot happening right now. I thought we'd start with oil prices. Uh, if nothing else, I was on the bus this morning and there was uh, a tweet. You know, it's real now. Prices are over $2 at the petrol bowser. You know, oil prices, they're coming for us. Can you tell us why that's happening and also whether you think that's likely to be sustained, whether they are likely to stay high? Sure. Well, it, it is important to start with oil because you're right, it does impact everyone. Uh, if you drive a car, a work vehicle, if you work in transportation, if you work in aviation, agriculture, uh, you know, oil is a, a vital component of, of all of that. And it's really interesting. Obviously, in the, the very short term, we've seen oil prices significantly impacted by what's happening with respect to Russia and Ukraine. But in actual fact, we can go back about two years to the commencement of COVID to really get a, a handle on why we have high oil prices right now. And quite simply, when we saw the worst of COVID back in around about March, April 2020, we actually saw oil prices go negative. And by that, I mean they fell below $0 a barrel. Um, I think they actually felt around about $30, $40 per barrel negative, which actually meant that holders of crude oil were actually paying end users to take the oil off their hands because they just simply couldn't even give it away. So if uh, the world was in a dire situation back then and uh, most stakeholders thought that energy consumption was going to plummet, but that, that wasn't the case. And if you'd been able to secure a, a tanker or something like that back then and be paid to store oil, you'd be doing really, really well now with oil over $100 um, 
per barrel. But the key fundamentals are that what we saw in the post-COVID environment was governments stimulating their economies. And, and it wasn't just oil that benefited, it was a whole range of industrial commodities. But oil was a probably a standout. And we saw China do a lot of the economic heavy lifting uh, during 2020. And then the rest of the world sort of took over 2021 and into 2022. And oil is the lifeblood of the world economy. So we started to see oil recovering fairly quickly. And, uh, you know, from around about $20 a barrel back in early uh, 2020, we've, of course, seen it push past $100 a barrel. And there's talk of it going even higher, $150 a barrel, perhaps even higher. The key issue has been escalating demand that has coincided with a restricted uh, supply side. And by that, I mean the fact that the major oil producing groups like OPEC, like Russia, like the United States with its uh, shale oil business have been de-incentivized uh, to invest in new production uh, simply because of all of the talk about the move towards renewable energy. A lot of investment banks, et cetera, have not been uh, funding carbon fuel projects, especially oil projects. And so there's been a lack of investment in new wells, new infrastructure, new processing, new refineries and all of that sort of thing. So as demand has increased, we haven't seen uh, the corresponding increase in supply that we would have seen in previous decades. And that has led to a, a real short squeeze in, in the oil market that's contributed to where prices are today. That's such a fantastic explanation. Do you think they're likely to stay high, which kind of leads into my next question, but I'll just stay with oil for a second. Obviously, we've seen this squeeze over $100 a barrel. As you say, I remember also when they were negative because we saw investors and traders literally buying oil ETFs that, that particular 24-hour period when they were heavily negative. It was quite funny. Uh, and I'm sure they're feeling very proud of themselves right now if they'd hung on to them. Uh do you think it's likely to stay high if we've not been investing in capacity? So really good question. Yes, I do. Simply because of the fact that it's very, very difficult to in invest in capacity overnight and there doesn't seem to be the incentive uh, to do so. Um, it's very, very difficult for uh, banks, uh, investment funds to put money uh, into developing crude oil capacity to, to assisting companies simply because of the, the growing ESG movement. So I think we have to accept that the supply side will remain restricted. OPEC members who in the past would be able to pump out more crude oil as prices rose, because simply because of the fact that they were incentivized to do so, if the oil price rises from $50 to $100 a barrel, you want to be able to produce as, as many barrels as you possibly can they aren't able to do that. You know, they've been increasing their uh, allotted production on a month-by-month -month basis, but most OPEC members can't actually meet their quota allowances. And it's the same in the United States. You know, the United States, for a period there, a couple of years ago, emerged as the world's biggest oil producer because of its shale industry. The shale industry was significantly impacted by the COVID fall in oil prices. The shale industry there is typically very, very sensitive to oil prices. It's typically rather high cost. So the oil price really has to be above $80 a barrel for most of their shale producers to be making money. And of course, the $20 a barrel 
uh, a lot of that shell production was wiped out. The interesting thing is, we whilst we have seen some sort of recovery in the US shale industry, it's been restricted basically to the Permian Basin, which is a significant shale produced in the United States. Um, but most of the other basins simply have not recovered. Oil companies there, oil producers around the world, particularly the United States, are happy to sit on their cash, not to invest in new projects, uh, return uh, money to shareholders, much like we've seen BHP doing on the mining side of things, and uh, happy to sit back and take advantage of high oil prices without putting extra uh, supply out into the market. Oh, that's going to be something for investors to be thinking about. How much impact, uh, and I should note, so we're recording on the 9th of March, uh, so a week or so before we publish, the news came out this morning that Biden was saying that the US would not be buying any oil from Russia. You can correct me if I got that wrong because I was reading it on the bus, as I said. Um do you see Russia's supplies being constrained in the future or more to the point, the demand for Russian supplies drying up very quickly? And is that going to affect things also? It's really significant that the United States has taken the step to uh, curtail its purchasing of Russian oil. It's been talked about and indeed the, the prospect of it has been a major driver of oil prices over recent days. The fact that they've implemented that, I think, will just reinforce the strength in oil prices because there's every prospect now that we will see European countries uh, following suit. The West has been looking at each other, uh, member nations as to who would jump first. I think the US has taken the lead because they, they do want to demonstrate leadership on this particular issue. They do want to impact Russia. Uh, financially, because that is the cash cow that is keeping Russia's war machine uh, operational, to curtail purchasing of Russian oil sends the strongest possible message uh, to the market and to the world. And I imagine that uh, when we see additional European countries uh, jumping on board, which not just oil, but also you know gas, uh, there's the prospect for even higher oil prices, not just because supply is curtailed, but because those uh, Purchasing countries will have to go into the market and look for oil elsewhere, which will bid up the price of crude oil. Yeah, it's quite incredible the way this is playing out at this moment. A month ago, a lot of it would have been uh, beyond comprehension. One suggestion in an article that we recently published on Nabtrade actually is that all of this will result in a more accelerated transition away from fossil fuels and that we'll see a more rapid uptake of renewables because it does allow many countries to be more self-sufficient and suddenly being self-sufficient becomes very attractive when the alternative is buying from from Russia uh, and so we will see a more rapid uptake of renewables we'll see more electric vehicles we'll see battery storage for wind and solar potentially more nuclear energy all of those possibilities sort of broadly seem very beneficial for parts of the Australian mining sector. What are your thoughts on that? First of all, whether it's likely to occur, uh, and secondly, whether or not there are elements uh, of the Australian share market that might stand to benefit. Sure. I think the essence of what you're suggesting essentially is energy security, which is something that I think we've perhaps taken for granted 
over recent decades, simply because of the fact that uh, we've lived in a, a relatively peaceful time, you know, since the conclusion of the Cold War. So this has really thrown the cat amongst the pigeons. And it's got individuals and countries and governments and consumers, uh, you know, it's caught them on the hop. I'd like to think that uh, conceptually, this will accelerate the move towards renewables. But I think there are some significant challenges there. I mean, certainly governments and consumers will be incentivized to cut back on on driving and that sort of thing. I mean, higher fossil fuel prices, you know, you have a thing called demand destruction, which ultimately will impact consumer behavior to some degree when prices reach a certain level. Um, and obviously a move away from fossil fuels would be would be beneficial. But well, I believe the transition is going to be difficult to actually accelerate. And I think there are a range of factors that uh, will contribute to that. I, I think that the first and most important point is that mining miners themselves are already fairly stretched in, in terms of maximising output of industrial metals. And these are the key industrial metals that will are crucial to the energy transition. You know, things like nickel, copper, uh, lithium, uh, all of those sorts of commodities, um, simply because they are involved in the uh, the storage and distribution of uh, of renewable energy. Now, mining companies are already stretched in terms of trying to get the stuff out of the ground as quickly as possible in order to meet current demand. And that is why over the last two years, we've seen commodity prices steadily rising, just like oil, so have industrial metals. And it started two years ago. And you know, we've been faced with a situation even before Ukraine of most of these industrial materials trading in a situation of, of backwardation. And backwardation just means that buyers uh, are so keen to get their hands on product that they're willing to pay a premium. And you know, if you have a look at the LME over the last few months, nearly all of the key industrial metals have been trading in backwardation. So that shows how, I guess, crucial the demand supply balance is at the present time. And so the issue for the energy transition is getting access to industrial metals. And there are significant headwinds to supply other than miners trying to keep up. I mean, we're seeing a growing ESG movement and, and, and that is great conceptually. We've also got you know, a lack of investment over recent decades, which has contributed as well. Mining companies typically have learned the lessons of the past. BHP and Rio Tinto have learned the lessons of the past when we saw high commodity price environments where they went out and engaged in expensive acquisitions that destroyed shareholder value. So they're keeping more of their cash in their pockets, giving it back to shareholders in the forms of outrageous dividends. And they haven't been investing in new uh, new mines, new operations. And you've also got the social challenge of bringing new mines to the market and logistic and political risk factors. And of course, political risk factors are more prominent now than ever before. So there's Whilst it's conceptually a great thing to accelerate and governments and consumers would like to accelerate the transition to uh, renewable energy, I think there are significant headwinds that, that, are, that are going to prevent that happening. That's a really fascinating perspective on it. 
if the demand is there to make that transition, and I think, as you say, energy security is a really different issue to ESG, and you, you might end up with two different ends of the political spectrum on the same page about what we're trying to achieve for the first time in a while, simply because being uh, self-sufficient and having energy security is so desirable for pretty much everybody. Uh do you see them prices accelerating? That seems the logical conclusion. If everybody wants it, but the supply is constrained, we just pay more for the privilege? Absolutely. I mean, we, we'd already seen most commodities trading at decade highs even before Russia invaded Ukraine. So this is effectively icing on the commodity cake, if you like. I mean, look, where I see probably the acceleration to renewables happening is probably going to be in the nuclear sector, just to get back to your original question, because uh, we've seen key European countries deactivating nuclear power. Germany is is probably front and centre, and and Germany is highly exposed, of course, in terms of its base low power. It's committed itself to moving towards renewables faster than probably any other European country, but at the same time, it relies on Russia predominantly for its base low power in the form of gas. And it's effectively shut down most of its uh, nuclear power plants. Interestingly enough, the new German chancellor has just suggested the new government there that they will look to reactivate some of those uh, decommissioned or soon to be decommissioned uh, nuclear power plants. So I think governments all over the world are reevaluating energy in the scope of energy security. They're obviously motivated by pricing as well and the impact that it has on consumers and their citizens, but energy security is is really, really important. We've also seen France just last month committing to building, uh, I think, 16 new nuclear reactors over the coming decade. So, you know, France is effectively doubling down on uh, on nuclear power. So, you know, it, it, it will happen. Um, it's just that I think probably with regards to solar and uh, that sort of thing, and maybe wind, it's going to take a little bit longer simply because of the challenges in terms of sourcing some of the key industrial uh, commodities that will be necessary to to build out that infrastructure. It just takes a hell of a long time to find world-class mines uh, to develop them and bring them to to market. And it's not easy to, to ramp up production. You know, mines like Escondida take decades and decades to actually bring to market and then, uh, and, and then upscale, you know, and Escondida is the biggest copper producer in the world. So miners are, are, are challenged. The supply side is challenged. And, um, you know, it is going to be an issue. But at the same time, huge opportunity for Australia. You know, we are, in my opinion, the number one destination in terms of commodity production uh, throughout the world. We have next to no geopolitical risk you know we have a stable democracy we have a history of mining we have a history of being able to develop projects and fund projects and get them to market and we're an enormously reliable supplier which has been demonstrated over more than 100 years and we're on asia's doorstep so i think what it does is a lot of these challenges that may be affecting other continents will actually be to australia's advantage I feel like you may have answered this question, but not specifically this question. So I'm going to ask it anyway for the benefit of those who've been sort of loosely paying attention. 
when we look at what's happening in global stock markets, uh, for anyone who hasn't been watching, there's been something of a re-rating lately and uh, there's been uh, corrections and I think the NASDAQ's technically in a bear market, perhaps not of, as of this morning, but it was yesterday. Uh because of rising inflation and likely impact on interest rates, so we've talked a lot on this podcast about monetary policy and the impact of zero interest rates over the last decade or more and how it stimulated markets and so on, investors are starting to come to terms with the idea that inflation is here to stay, that rates will rise, they will return to normal in inverted commas and when inflation takes off, you know, we've got plenty of investors, probably myself included, who have never seen a high inflation environment. So this is a, a new environment for a lot of investors. For our older listeners, this is not new for you. Um, <laughs> you've seen this before. But when inflation takes off, there aren't a lot of safe harbors and investors are asking the question, where do I go when inflation is high, I'm paying more for everything and the stocks that I was happy to buy on a multiple of you know, 70 or 80 times has fallen dramatically. The suggestion is commodities offer some protection. Now, I feel like the macro issues we've been discussing uh, already suggest that's the case. But do you see it that way when you look at markets more broadly, that commodities are by far the most attractive safe haven for investors? Yes, I do. And I think we've already seen that in the evidence of a lot of hedge funds, a lot of investor groups have actually been buying into commodities, particularly over recent months, should I say late 2021 and into 2022. It was clear once we saw the inflation data that came out of the United States that uh, said that you know inflation there was at its highest level for four decades, that inflation was more than something as the Fed described that was going to be just transitory. It, it was going to be here to stay but for some period of time. And I think most sensible investors were looking past what the Fed was saying uh, with respect to inflation. So, you know, the, the market was already coming to grips with what might happen with interest rates. And, you know, the Fed has talked a lot about interest rates. It's tried to jawbone the market as it had in the post-GFC environment, but suggesting, you know, interest rates are just around the corner. They're just around the corner. And then, you know, in the post-GFC environment, we actually saw very, very little for about five or six years. You know, we, I think we saw, you know, maybe one quarter of a percentage interest rate rise despite a lot of jawboning. You know, we're starting to see that again with the Fed. And, you know, there's talk that they'll raise rates in March, but now they're sort of backtracking on on further commitments. They will wait and see the impacts of inflation and how the first interest rate rise impacts the market before they do anything. I think they've got the perfect excuse now not to do anything because of obviously this uncertainty around what's happening with uh, inflation and the world economy and, and Russia. So, but inflation isn't going away and it really is, you know, back to the 70s, you know, flare pants, escalating oil prices, wars, um, all of that sort of thing. So really, we've already seen a move by investors into commodities right across the board. And inflation, if you like, protection, hedge is just another factor. It's a, a, another layer on the cake, if you like, that's that's driven commodity prices you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking precious metals, gold, palladium, platinum, silver. Uh, if you're talking about energy, 
crude oil, uh, gas, thermal coal, you know, bulk commodities, you know, coking coal, iron ore, uh, and of course the industrial metals that we've already spoken about. All asset classes have been moving upwards and not just because of inflation, but because they have very, very strong fundamentals. But the inflation uh, situation really is just uh, icing on the cake. And as I said earlier, most of these commodities have been in backwardation, which means that uh, you know consumers, end users want to get their hands on the stuff. They're competing uh, against each other for product. China has said uh, that uh, China's authorities there have told their state-owned enterprises to move away from Russia and just go out there and source commodities, whether they be industrial commodities or soft commodities that are used in food production, energy, whatever it might be. So you've got you know, a smaller pool of resources of supply if we take out Russia and um, growing competition for, for that shrinking pool of commodity supply. So it, it, it really does stack up as a very, very positive um, cocktail for commodity prices in terms of their pricing output. It's good to look at that in the context of the fundamentals as well as just a total re-rating of everything in the market, which I think we're seeing in some some sectors, certainly tech, uh, is having quite the re-rating at the moment. One other suggestion we're seeing uh, is the, the high volatility we're seeing in the share market, and most listeners to this podcast, very interesting in the sh- very interested in the share market, is that investors will seek safety in gold. You know, that that's the traditional safe haven. It's where you go when the world looks like it's going to pieces, when everyone gets their flared pants out again. Do you think gold's going to have another day in the sun? There are certainly those who've been saying, you know, the flight to gold never happens. I'll be interested to see hear your thoughts. Yes, well, yeah, there's, there's obvious evidence in the market, you know, with the gold price rising above $2,000 uh, per ounce, that we've seen gold fulfilling its role its traditional role as a hedge against risk and uncertainty. But it's important to point out that it wasn't just the Ukraine war, Russia's invasion that has uh, driven gold prices. Sure, it, it's, it's, it's moved prices upward pretty quickly. But again, it's really interesting to look at context by looking at the bigger picture um, to get a, a handle on where commodity prices have, have come from. In the case of gold, uh, I'd like to go back to just prior to the year 2000, because around about that time, we saw gold trading at around about $270 US per ounce. Britain's central bank had uh, sold off all of its gold. Our central bank, it's, I think it sold off two thirds of our gold. Gold was viewed as being an ancient relic that had no purpose and a modern economy with all sorts of financial instruments that could take its place. Well, fast forward two decades and gold has gone from below $300 an ounce to above $2,000 per ounce. So who was right and, and, and who was wrong? You know, gold has fulfilled this role for thousands of years. You know, it can't be printed or devalued or replicated. So, you know, gold is finite. And I think that's the outstanding quality that it has, and it has been proven as a risk hedge over millennia. So, you know, what has driven this increase in in the gold price over two decades? Well, I think there are some common factors. Um, Certainly, we've seen rising debt levels around the world. 
low interest rate environments, governments, you know, economic stimulus, steroids to keep the economy going uh, around the world. As soon as, you know, there's the slightest risk of a cold, there's more stimulus out there. You know, we've seen ultra, ultra low interest rates now since effectively the GFC. You know, interest rates haven't gone back to anywhere near the sorts of levels that they were previously and, and probably can't because of the escalating debt levels around the world. Governments, central banks would have to uh, finance the, the interest repayments on their debt and that would be absolutely extraordinary. So when will we get back to normalised interest rates? What would that do to mortgages, etc.? Interest rates went back to 9 or 10%. Goodness, goodness knows. So we seem to be living in this world of permanently low interest rates and governments, central banks are loath to, to, to increase them. So as a result, debt levels have escalated. We've also seen weaker currencies as a result of uh, escalating debt. And central banks themselves are very much aware of what's going on. So over the past two decades, we've seen central banks coming into the market and buying gold like they haven't for a long, long time. And a perfect example of this is, is Russia, which over the past decade has been the biggest buyer of gold of any nation. And its gold purchases now, it, it, it ranks as the, the fifth largest holder of gold. So it's actually moved away from US dollars and other key uh, forms of investment and has increased its exposure to gold. And, and it's not alone. We've seen a lot of central banks doing that. So look at the outlook for gold. Gold, I think, will continue to perform strongly this situation isn't going to resolve itself anytime soon when you've got uncertainty around inflation or the the factors we've spoken about you know gold lost a little bit of ground last year because investors were putting their money into energy and industrial metals that were performing better but gold has made up that ground so far this year so when you've got concerns around growth inflation political risk issues rising debt levels Gold is 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 still very much the place to be and has a place in any investor's portfolio. I don't think I've had anyone uh, clearly make the case for gold uh, quite so specifically uh, on the podcast in four years. It's something that uh, a lot of the financial experts we talk to don't don't have a place for anymore. But as you say, it uh, it certainly performed over the long run. If we think about all of the sectors we've talked about and all of the commodities and materials and energy stocks and so on that give investors real potential to grow their portfolios but also offer some kind of hedge in this environment. What are you seeing at the moment that looks most attractive? You look mostly at the smaller end of the sector, but uh, where would you suggest investors focus their energies? Well, all sectors are attractive at, at present, uh, you know, due to the fact that they're all being driven by the same very strong demand supply fundamentals, as well as the political risk premium. And again, that, that refers to the precious metals, industrial metals and energy sectors. We will continue to see enormous volatility across the board, as as demonstrated by the surge in the nickel price uh, you know, over the past 24 hours uh, to its highest level, uh, sort of the short squeeze that's driven the nickel price uh, was the biggest rise in the LME's 145-year history. So we'll, we will see volatility 
manifesting itself right across the board. But if I had to select a sector which I believe is the safest longer term, I would probably look at industrial metals as those will be the key in the production and distribution of renewable energy. So we're looking at copper, nickel, zinc, lead, tin, aluminium, and you know you could also throw in things like uh, lithium uh, as well, although it's technically not an industrial metal. The strong fundamentals that are driving all commodities at the present time, I think will continue for longer with respect to industrial metals, simply because of the fact that you've got that longer term uh, thematic that's out there. So we're seeing strong demand right across the board for all commodities. We're seeing supply side issues, but I think industrial metals should be the area that investors perhaps should target more from a longer term perspective. Uh, there's obviously going to be a lot of fun had in the market um, in near to medium term basis right across the board. But I think the thematic for industrial metals is particularly strong because, as you know, relating to one of your questions earlier, governments will want to try and accelerate the move to renewable energy. That's going to put even more pressure on the supply side as far as industrial metals are concerned. Companies are going to be incentivized to try and source supply and develop mines quicker. Whether it will actually happen, will it will be allowed to happen is another matter. But I think that will put even more sustained upward price pressure on the basket of in industrial metals. So I think that would be the sector I'd look at. With respect to precious metals and energy, I think they are going to be more unpredictable over the over the longer term. But still, there are key factors that support um, investment in, in those asset classes as well. I think we have a lot of investors who'll be very happy to have heard you say that. Are there any areas, and I haven't heard any actually through the conversation we've been having, but I'd love to know, are there any areas that you think investors should be really cautious right now when they're looking at materials more broadly? Just looking at things, the market, the resource sector specifically from my years of, of covering it, seeing the ups and downs, the cycles, you know, the, there's typically a lot of volatility and, and companies, investors tend to take advantage of that volatility as much as they can. And look, what we've seen over the last two years in the post-COVID environment has been an outstanding environment for the resource sector. And, and the junior end of the market in Australia has really benefited from that. One of the key ways that benefited is the ability to raise money because we had seen over the last 10 to 15 years periods of price spikes with regards to commodities. And we'd seen share prices moving and investors getting excited and companies getting excited and markets getting excited, but it really wasn't sustainable. But what we've seen this time around is the ability for companies to raise significant amounts of money to fund exploration programs, to go out there and appraise projects, to advance projects, complete studies, bring projects to market. You know, we haven't seen the volume of funding that's been provided over the last couple of years for, well, I would say probably two decades. So it has been an outstanding environment. So good quality companies have been able to take advantage of that. However, we've also seen, you know, with the good comes the bad, there's been some degree of speculative mania that we haven't seen for some time. And, and you, you know, Gemma, there's that old expression that a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's what we've seen in the 
junior end of the resource sector for the past couple of years. The good companies have risen with the bad. Now, the quality of some of these offerings probably doesn't stack up in terms of the lofty valuations that have been assigned to them by the market, if I can, if I can put it politely. So the word of caution that I would issue investors and speculators is just be cautious when you're looking at some of these junior companies. I don't mean to sound boring, uh, but you know, st stay away from the fancy presentations uh, with, with a lot of fluff, and, and and tend to go try and go with companies that have a directors with a, a strong track record of success, that have good projects and have got ability to raise funding. Now, unfortunately, all companies seem to be able to raise funding in this market. It doesn't matter whether you're at the, the at the top or or at the bottom. So that can be a little bit misleading. But really, have a look at management. And the other key thing is to have a look at how much hurt money directors actually have in the company. You know, have they bought their own shares? Have they funded the company? Not through cheap shares or cheap options, but, you know, are they, uh, are they major shareholders in the company? Because I think that is always a very, very good indication of a director's commitment to the company and, and its future prospects. Um, you know, if you come across companies that have directors that have virtually no shareholding in the company, but they're paying themselves uh, a hefty salary, I think you have to look twice at those sorts of situations because directors that have a lot of their own hurt money invested tend to be the, the, the sorts of directors that don't pay themselves big fancy salaries because, you know what, they've got their own money invested in the company. When it's somebody else's money, it can be a different story. So, again, just buy, beware, and uh, look for quality in, in this market. You are sounding like someone who's been doing this for a long time. <laughs> you can always tell when people are talking about hurt money. It's um, when they're talking about directors uh, having some money on the line and so on. It's, uh, you've obviously seen it all. That would be my suggestion at this point. Gavin, my life, and you provide research for investors in this sector. You often provide commentary in the media Uh on materials and the whole resources sector, but particularly the smaller end, where can people go to find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, the best place to go is to our, our website, which is www.mindlife.com.au, and they can find out more about what we do. We don't provide investment advice, but we do cover the sector fairly extensively. Gavin from MindLife, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Emma, and thank you to your listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback and love getting your questions. Obviously, this is one area you're very interested to know about at the moment. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.